book of Job, chapter 37. Chapter 37. I did say last week we're going to do 37 and 38, but there's so much to be taught in 37 and 38 that we're going to take them separately. Again, I never like to rush through for the sake of, you know, shortening the studies. But chapter 37 is now Elihu is going to finish his speech to Job. This, this will be the last thing that, that Elihu says to Job. In chapter 36, verse 26, Elihu said, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. And this is the subject of the last part of Elihu's speech here in chapter 37. And Eli, Elihu illustrates it with the wonderful works of God in nature. Specifically, God's control of his world during the seasons of the year. Elihu started in chapter 36, verses 27 through 29, using a storm to give several illustrations of his power. First, he uses a rainstorm as an example of divine power. Second, God has the power to spread the clouds over the skies. And then in chapter 36, verses 30 through 33, he says God can produce tremendous electrical power, even, though, even enough to give light on the bottom of the sea. Lightning is loaded with God's unchanging power. He said even the cattle know when a storm is coming. So Elihu was reminded by the storm of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. And in chapter 36, 31, he said, by these mighty acts, the things that he described there, he nourishes the people, giving them food in abundance. And now in chapter 37, he's continuing those illustrations. His next illustration for God's power is in verse 1 of chapter 37. Notice it says, and this also, also meaning what he just shared in the previous chapter, At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. At this also means in view of the thunderstorm. At this thunderstorm, he says, man, he says, he says, my heart leaps. It trembles. It leaps out of place. And so, you know, Elihu was describing here a thunderstorm. He started this description, like I said, in chapter 36, verse 29. And he continues here in chapter 37. Now, there shouldn't be a chapter break between 36 and 37. 37 is actually a continuation of chapter 36. But yet, you know, man, you know, trying to make things easier. Again, you know, just broke up the chapters. But nonetheless, you know, the, the, the scriptures are there. And so, again, it shouldn't have been separated by the division into chapters. Elihu sees a thunderstorm coming. And chapter 37 is a continuation of what he was describing in chapter 36. The clouds gather, the lightnings flash, the thunder rolls. And Elihu is overwhelmed because he's very aware of God's presence in these these storms. And you can't find a more detailed and impressive description of a thunderstorm than hearing God's word. The way Elihu describes it. And when Elihu thinks about God's power, it says here in verse 1, his heart pounds, it trembles. And God's power should put the fear of God in us. Elihu's heart was ready to jump out of his chest. You know, when things scare you, you get, you know, you, it frightens you and your heart starts to pump and, and you feel like it's going to you know, jump out of your chest. This is the effect it had on Elihu. 
And it's often the same effect it has uh, on men at a sudden fright or sound, and especially when a, a boom of thunder hits. You know, everybody kind of jumps. Well, that's what he's describing here. Now let's look at verse 2, 4, and 5. He says, Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Verse 4. After it, after, it a voice roar, after it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Now these verses is God's voice in the clouds and of thunder. And Elihu was affected by it, so he exhorts those that are around him to give respectful attention and listen to it and learn something from it. People have always been fascinated by the awesome spectacle of lightning and the sound of thunder. And especially I've lived in the mountains for several years at times, and and when you see a mountain thunderstorm or lightning storm, it's amazing. Kathy and I used to sit out on the, on the front porch and just watch the lightning because, again, it's just an amazing sight. And the thunder. It seems to be a lot louder in the mountains than, you know, in, in the city. But, again, it, it's, quite a, it's quite a thing to see and a, quite a thing to hear. And, again, uh, it's a spectacle of lightning, the sound of thunder. It's God's light show. And Elihu was no exception. He was, he was awed by it. And the sound of thunder emphasizes the power of God in sound. His power in sound can be louder than any sound system, any sound that man can make. And it can also have more wattage power than any amplifier can produce. And notice he mentions the rumbling of it. In the King James Version, it says the sound of it. Okay, the, the word rumbling or sound used here properly means a muttering, growling, like thunder. It's often used to mean sighing or moaning and meditation in many different sounds other than from clear speech. But here, when, when Elihu used this, this rumbling, it refers to the thunder that seems to mutter or growl in the sky. Now, verse 3 and 13. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. Verse 13. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his, or his land or for mercy. Now, he says here that God's power is controlled by his will. God controls how he displays and uses his power. God is sovereign. So he directs the use of his power however he pleases. Verse 5, God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. If we can understand God's power, then it wouldn't be God's power. Because if you can explain a work of God, then it's probably not a work of God. Because God's power is so great and so superior that the human mind at its best can't even begin to understand it. Paul said in Romans eleven thirty four, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse six, for he, speaking of God, for he says to the snow, fall on the earth, likewise to the gentle rain and the rain, the heavy rain of his strength. In other words, the snow comes forth at the command of God. Snow comes when God says for it to come. Snow is a proof of his wisdom and greatness. 
And the idea is that the formation of snow was an illustration of the wisdom of God and should teach people to look upon him with reverence. Now, we're not to think that the laws by which snow is formed in the atmosphere was understood by Elihu in his day. He didn't understand how and why and how it all came about. The fact that it seemed to be the effect of the immediate creation of God was the main idea in the mind of Elihu in illustrating the wisdom of God. There are treasures in the snow. And at the time, they didn't understand any of that, except the Holy Spirit is making that point here. But Elihu is looking at this and saying, when God created the earth and he calls forth the snow, all of that was already made, was built into the snow. It wasn't like after it started snowing, he said, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this. And God says, I'm going to do it. I mean, all of the thing, all of the, of the treasures of the snow was just in, when, in the spoken word when he created the seasons, showing the wisdom of God and the discoveries of science. You know what they find in the snow and what it does to the earth? The discoveries of science does not take away the evidence of the creator's wisdom and greatness. But that every new discovery tends to change, you know, blind admiration. You see something, you don't understand it, and you just think it's great. And, oh, man, that is just amazing. It's, it's a blind admiration. You know, when we look at the wisdom and the power of God, now it becomes an intelligent devotion to God. To, 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 to change from wonder to praise. In other words, science doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves science. You know, whenever science comes up with a new discovery, the Bible says, we already knew that. It's been written. It's been documented way before science ever discovered it. Snow is one of the great and mysterious things of God. What, what is the cause of it? How is it generated? What gives it its comparable whiteness and its form? You know, when you compare whiteness to something, you always say, it's white as snow. Whenever it's white as an egg or it's white as this or it's white, it's white as snow. Where did its form come from? And every snowflake different. Why? God does not do things randomly. God directs the snow to fall on the earth. He tells the rain to pour down upon the earth. It can snow so much, as we're watching in those various states across the United States, it can snow so much that the snow plows can't keep the roads clear fast enough, and they just have to wait until the snow lightens up. And I've seen that happen when I lived in the mountains. All of those disabling snowstorms, like the ones that are in Chicago right now, Buffalo, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Cleveland, Texas, they are demonstrations of God's power. I was reading the headlines. It says millions without power. They're told to keep, keep their heat low and all of the things that they're to do to try to, to deal with this. God can shut down major highways, airports, travel, all kinds of operations. He can bring everything to a screeching halt. That's his power. And then this is what happens after that in verses 7 and 8. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. The beasts go into the dens and remain in their lairs. When this kind of thing that's happening, you know, in, in some of these other states, it says here that God seals the hands of every man. That means he stops them from working. They can't do anything. 
And then everybody stops working, and all they can do is watch the power of God, what he's doing. All the winds, the snow, the freezing temperatures. It says here the animals go into their dens in the winter. Which is also the time all of this says that God's power controls the seasons of the year. And remember, Satan has no power over the weather. You know, sometimes we have an event and, oh, the devil really ruined it, man. He brought rain. He doesn't have power over the weather. Listen to Genesis 8, 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Nahum 1.3, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Exodus 10, verse 13 and 19. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought, the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts and the Lord turned a very strong west wind which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. Numbers 11.31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. God is in control of everything. Verses 9 and 10. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and coal from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. I mean, how applicable this is today, seeing all that's going on in these states. Tornadoes and hurricanes and other strong winds show the greatness of God's power. And cold, freezing winds come out of the north north and freezes wide bodies of waters like lakes and rivers. Verses 11 and 12, also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. We learned earlier that God has the power to spread clouds over the sky. And here we learn that God also has the power to clear the sky so that it's bright and clear and not covered with clouds. Verse 13, he causes it to come, whether for correction or for his hand or for his mercy. Listen to this. That is, the rain or the storm, whatever the weather might be, it's totally under the hand of God, like the lightning in chapter 3630. And it's designed to accomplish his purpose. Again, whether it's a purpose of mercy or judgment. Not popular today to think that these things might be the judgment of God. I don't know. I'm not saying it is. But the Bible says that God can use weather conditions to, to bring about his mercy as a blessing or a judgment. The purpose for God's power is controlled by the wisdom of God. God exercises his power with great wisdom. Something that man seldom does with his limited power. Man often uses his power foolishly and for the wrong things. Following God's commands, they, it says here, they beam the elements, the weather. Following God's command, they bring judgment on some people. We saw that in the Old Testament. The drought. By ruining their crops. Flooding their possessions. Drowning them like he did the the, the Pharaoh's army. He used the weather 
for judgment. Other times the the storm clouds water the earth and and the like. And they demonstrate his love. Because the the water will, will grow the crops. The rain is much needed for that. Again, evidence that his power is balanced with his compassion, whether it's mercy or judgment. Verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu exhorts Job to think about and take notice of the great works of God. Elihu seems to think that Job hasn't done this. And yet, as we learn in the first part of the book of Job, Job was more godly than his peers. Verse 15, he goes on to ask Job, Job, do you know when God dispatches them, that is, again, the the clouds and the storm, and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Elihu now asked Job some questions about God's power. And this was really to belittle Job and to make him look like he doesn't know anything about God's power. And Elihu asked Job four questions there in verse 15. In the first part of verse 15, he says, Job, do you know when God dispatches them? In other words, Job, do you know why and when and how God sends out the winds, the clouds, clouds, the cold and the snow? And the question refers to the way that God arranges them and rules them rather than to the time when it was done. How he arranges the storms, how he uses them, how he governs them, what they're to be used for, rather than the time when it's done. The question wasn't whether Job knew when all of this was done, but whether he could explain how. How it was that God arranged in order like this the things that he was talking about. Divine sovereignty determines what God does. Second, Elihu asked Job, and do you know how he causes the light of his cloud to shine there in the second part of verse 15? Job, can you explain what causes lightning? Can you tell us how it is that it seems to break out of a dark cloud? When it's not lightning, Job, where's it hiding? Where's it at? And by what laws is it now brought out to be seen? Elihu assumes that all of this was done by the hand of God, which he assumes to be true. And so it was possible for people to explain the way it was all done. You see, his, his objective here is to show that the deep reverence of God should be shown for God. A God like our, who works this way, God's sovereign authority controls all of that too the third thing that he asked job there in verse 16 notice job do you know how the clouds are balanced those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge job do you know how the clouds are balanced the word balance here refers to suspension job do you know how those clouds are just setting up in the sky job how do those those heavy bodies The clouds, some of them are very heavy, full of water. How they're suspended and they just hang in the air without going here and without going there or falling to the earth. He does it, Job. I mean, he's telling he does Job with wonderful perfection and skill. This is another one of God's wondrous works, which no one but God, whose knowledge is perfect and who is the author and the giver of knowledge, can know. 
Only God knows. Even the floating and the balancings of the cloud in the air. They're balanced. But we don't know how it's done. It's God's power that keeps the clouds suspended in the sky, especially when they're full of tons of water. The fourth thing, fourth question that Eli has for jo- Elihu has for Job is in verse 17 and 18. Job, why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the skies, strong as a cast metal mirror? He goes on to say, you know, after he says, you know, man doesn't know how, you know, God does the things he does with the clouds and how he balances them and he keeps them in the air. He says, man isn't capable of doing what God does. Like making a clear blue summer sky, which seems hard like a mirror made of bronze. In other words, God makes the skies reflect the heat like a bronze mirror causing people to sweat in the still hot weather. Job, how does he do that? The south wind removes the clouds and lets the sun shine so hot that one sweats under his clothes. Job, can you do that? Can you make that happen? Verse 19. Job, teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Now, this seems to be addressed to Job. Elihu here seems to be suggesting that that he himself was overwhelmed with a sense of the majesty and the glory of such a God. He didn't know in what way or with what words to approach such a being like the true living God. And he's asking Job, Job, if you know how to approach this, this God, this mighty, awesome God, tell me. By reason of darkness in men, which is in all men naturally, and even in the saints in that state of imperfection, we're in a state of darkness. We don't know all things. And by reason of the clouds and darkness which are about the Lord himself, the Lord who is beyond our understanding in his nature and his perfections, by reason of the darkness that's cast about his, the way he does things, how he deals with men, we're in darkness about that. We don't know how he does it. Those things that are so unsearchable and past finding out and the best of men are at a loss at how to talk with God about these things. Job, can you do that? If you don't, tell me. Verse 20. Job, he says to Job, should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. In other words, to ask to speak in God's presence like Job wanted to. Remember back in the early chapters, he says, I want to stand before God. I want to take my case before God. I want him to hear what I have to say. He says, Job, to, to, to ask to speak in God's presence like you want to do in order to accuse him of wrongdoing, that would be like, that would be like asking to be swallowed up or destroyed by God. Verse 21. Even now men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies when the wind has passed and cleared them. Here Elihu reviews and sums up what he had been saying about God's power. And he says eight things about God's power. First, his power is invisible. Now this refers to the sun. Now we know the sun isn't invisible. But the power of the sun is. It's a creation. The sun is a creation that shows the great power of God and the fact that man can't look at it because it's too bright. 
Puny man can't even look at the sun and its brightness without being blinded. How then could he hope to endure standing in God's presence? Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, who man has not seen, has man, who man you know, has seen, I'm sorry, whom no man has seen or can see. Moses said in Exodus 33, or God said to Moses in Exodus 33, 20, You cannot see my face, Moses, for no man shall see me and live. The second thing that Elihu says about God's power is it's comforting. Look at the first part of verse 22. He comes from the north as golden splendor. In other words, the stillness of the air the bright, is bright and pure as gold. In King James, it says the fair weather. It comforts man. This is just one of the many ways that comforts us, that God's power comforts us. The third thing that Elihu says about God's power is it's majestic. Look at the second line in verse 22. With God is awesome majesty. God is awesome. This is not something that's said about God in general, but it's something that's said about God as he then appeared to Elihu. These are the words of somebody who has been overwhelmed with God's wondrous majesty as the brightness of his presence was seen in the storm through the lightning. Men would try to make God to be less than human today. Idolatry turns him into a piece of wood or metal or stone, but our God is awesome. And is a whole lot more than an idol or a flawed man. The fourth thing that Elihu says about God in verse 23, in the first part of verse 23, notice it says, As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. His power is beyond understanding. Where God is seen approaching, invisible splendor, covered with clouds and storms, and seated on the throne of shiny gold, such a God, Elihu says, was impossible to understand. His majesty was overwhelming. God and his power are too great for man to totally understand. And again, if we could understand God's power, he wouldn't be much of a God. The fifth thing Elihu describes about God's power is it's excellent. Look at the second part of verse 23. He is excellent in power. He's excellent in power. He excels or is vast and incomprehensible in his power. No one is excellent in power like God. He surpasses all with his power. The sixth thing about God's power is it's righteous. Look at the third line in verse 23. In judgment and abundance, justice. I'm sorry, in judgment and abundant justice, he does not oppress. God's power is righteous. What this means is that, that there was an overflowing fullness of righteousness. God's character was totally righteous or that trait abounded in him. And it says God does not oppress. In other words, God doesn't use his power to do evil like so many men will do. The seventh thing about God's power is it's influential. The first part of verse line in verse 24. Therefore, men fear him. It's influential. There's reason. There's a reason why they should fear him. 
or why they should treat him with reverence. God's power has a great influence on men. It causes men to have the fear of God in them. But there are still some who don't respond to the power of God. But you know what? That's not any fault of God's power. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean that he's any less in power. It's the fault of the wicked sinner who hardens his heart. And then the eighth thing that Eli, he says about God's power, uh, it's sovereign. Look at the second part of verse 24. He shows no partiality to any who are wise in heart. God follows his own plans. God puts together his own plans. God carries out his counsels. God does not depend upon suggestions from people. God doesn't listen to man's advice. God's plans are original. They're self-determining. That says he does them himself. Therefore, people should regard God with the deepest reverence. These verses are the heart and soul of everything that Elihu had to say to Job. That God was original and independent. That God didn't need or take counsel or ask counsel from people in the the way he did things. That he was great and glorious and mysterious in his plans. And for that reason, people should bow before him with profound submission and adoration. And it was to be taken for granted that God was wise and good in everything that he, get, he did. And to this independent and almighty sovereign God, man should submit his understanding to him and his heart. So having illustrated and enforcing this viewpoint... Elihu overwhelmed with these dreadful symbols of the approaching deity, the approaching God. God is silent and God comes in now to close the controversy. In chapter 38. Elihu's closing words here remind us that even though we can't fully understand God, we know that he's great, we know that he's fair, and he doesn't afflict people for no reason at all. So what should our personal response be to God? Fear him. That is, reverence him. Job had come to the same conclusion after thinking about the works of God in the world. Back in chapter 28. And it's possible that while Eli, he was speaking, that an actual storm was in the making off in the distance. When when he finished, the storm broke and God was in the storm. Job will now get what he'd been asking for, a personal meeting with God. Was he ready? Are we ready? With all of his his long-windedness and his lack of humility, Elihu did say some good things that Job needed to hear. Elihu's use of rhetorical questions in in this chapter in verses 14 and 18 prepared Job for the series of questions that God was going to ask him when we get to chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. And unlike Job's three friends, Elihu assessed Job's problem correctly. Job's actions may have been right. He wasn't the sinner his his three friends 
thought he was and described him to be. But Job's attitude was wrong about all of this. Job wasn't the saint that he saw himself to be. Job was slowly moving toward a disobedient and self-righteous attitude that wasn't good for him. It wasn't healthy. And it was this know-it-all attitude that God exposed to Job. And that God destroyed when he appeared to Job and questioned him. So even though God didn't say anything about Elihu, he had a lot of, Elihu had a, a lot to say that was helpful. It was helpful ministry to Job, but Job wouldn't accept it. So now, when we get to chapter 38, Job is going to hear what God has to say. After Elihu ended his speech here in chapter 37, in chapter 38, God begins to speak to Job. And the overall nature of God's speech is one of displeasure with Job, which may surprise a lot of people. After what God said in the very, oh, he's, a, he's righteous and he shuns evil and he's a godly man and he just, man, just was bragging on Job. But what, Job, what God has to say to Job here wasn't, you know, it wasn't very pleasurable. And this speech may seem like a strange and inappropriate speech to, to some people. Because again, it talks about the wonders of creation. It doesn't talk about Job's suffering. See, that's what Job is wanting God to talk to him about all this time. God doesn't answer when he speaks to him in chapter 3. God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't apologize for not saying anything to Job for so long. He doesn't give, give Job a, a, an attaboy or a pat on the back for hanging in there. He doesn't offer Job a hint of information about the whole thing between himself and Satan way back when it all started. Plus, God doesn't acknowledge that Job has been through deep struggles. That's heavy. He doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge that Job has been through deep struggles. When God finally does say something, he starts with a rebuke. By now, Job has gotten a bit independent and arrogant. And you get that way when you defend yourself for so long. That's what happens when you have to stand against the attacks of others. You tend to get a little self-confident. But God is going to talk to Job about a lot of things. But the first thing is to get Job's heart right before God. And God always knows how to do that. And if you take the time to count them, you'll find that God asks Job 75 questions in his two speeches to him. And you think after reading the previous chapters of Job that God's speech would have to do with telling Job about all of his sufferings. But that's not what God does. That's not the case. The purpose for God's speech wasn't to explain Job's sufferings. Again, which may be surprising. But here it is. God's purpose for his speech was to honor God. Specifically, it was to cause Job to stop his complaining about God and instead give him the honor that he's due. That is heavy. And God would justify what he did to Job. And in some of Job's speeches, Job had complained about the way God was treating him, which dishonored God. 
the questions about creation from Elihu were to sh- was to show that God is awesome in wisdom and power. So Job shouldn't be criticizing God or complaining about what God did or what God does in any given situation. But that he should be honoring God at all times. How that speaks to us. How we shouldn't be complaining about what God does in any situation, but we should be honoring honoring him at all times. God used the wonders of creation to deal with Job. And God would impress upon Job with his wisdom and power in creation to counter Job's complaints about God, which made God look like God was faulty in his wisdom and weak in his power, like God didn't know what he was doing. And sometimes we have, in our quietness of our, God, do you know what you're doing? God's speech, starting in chapter 38, shows that God is very concerned about his honor and that Job had dishonored God by criticizing him. And this was the main concern that God had in his speech to Job. All other injustices, all of the unfairness in his sufferings in Job's case, aren't important compared to the honor of God. Which is why when God rebuked Job's friends, he rebuked them for how they spoke about God himself. Not for how they had spoken about Job. So in closing, the most important thing in life is that we honor God. Paul said, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Where God isn't honored, God will rebuke like he did with Job. Or bring his vengeance like he does with those that are quarrelsome. And once God breaks the silence, he gives two speeches. His first speech is in chapter 38 to chapter 40, verse 5. And his second speech starts at chapter 40 to verse 6. So you can't wait to get into chapter 31 next Wednesday. Father, thank you so much again for this Father, this timeless book, Lord. Lord, we we have so much to learn, God. So much to learn, Father. And Father, remember at the beginning of the book of Job. God, we learned that. This book was not about Job. And his goodness or the devil and his wickedness or the battle between Job and the devil. It was about your honor, God. It was about your honor. It was about your glory. And God, I know it's easy to stand up here and for me to say that regardless of whatever kind of situation that we're in, we're not to complain but to give you glory and honor. And Lord, I don't even know if I could do that. I would admit, because I know who I am. But I would pray. And 
And I think we would all pray the same prayer, God, that you would help us to become that man, that woman, who cannot look at the, who wouldn't look at the situation and the sufferings of it, but to look at you, God, and to glorify you in the midst of the suffering. Like I said, it's it's easy to say, but Lord, help me to become that person if that time should come. So Father, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. And God, may it not just be words but may it be in our actions, Lord, and things that we do for you in your name and the things that we proclaim in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.